At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Will nickel-plated bullets wear out your steel barrels? And who first invented the 6.5-06? And in what year? Hey, we're going to find out in this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another show. Lots of questions, lots of answers. I hope we get some right. And I don't know about this nickel bullet business, but we're going to find out here as soon as we get to that question from one of our fans. First, though, we've got a gentleman from Oregon informing me something I asked about a, a few a few shows back. Someone had talked about shooting bench rest deer or bench leg deer. That was it. Bench leg deer in Oregon. I went, What's a bench leg deer? <laughs> well, this gentleman seems to know. Larkin. Larkin says, hey, you fellers from the eastern part of the country just lack the kind of sophistication it takes to know what a bench leg deer is. <laughs> a bench leg deer is a cross between a black-tailed deer and a mule deer, and they are found in the areas of the crest of the Cascade Mountains in Oregon. Blacktails are typically found on the west side of the Cascade Mountains and mule deer on the east side. And a marriage, if you will, between the two subspecies. And I'm not sure whether or not they're mm, getting involved without the benefit of marriage. But anyway, we have some very promiscuous deer up high in the ranges of Oregon. And that's what makes the bench leg deer. It's a hybrid. Blacktail and muley hybrid. Pretty interesting stuff. You know what's really interesting? Years ago, I read a book about mule deer. I think it was by Valerius Geist, and he was quite the uh, wildlife biologist up in, I think, in Calgary at a university. He was a German who uh, immigrated into Canada, and he was just doing all kinds of research on sheep and mule deer and elk and all the horned and antlered game. Um, and he, he had these details from a uh, mitochondrial DNA investigation of deer. Mitochondrial DNA is DNA that's passed down by the female line. So it tells where the female line came from. And what they found in their testing of mule deer is that the mitochondrial DNA suggested the mothers were white tails originally, not black tails. But black tails were not subspecies of mule deer. It was the other way around. So I think what they figured out was historically deer evolving in North America had white tails down in the Southeast. And then they crossed the country when conditions were optimum for that before the Great Plains kind of became uh, dried out. 
and they were in the woods as they still are up in northern Canada. And that enabled them to cross clear over to the west coast where they evolved because of the different habitats there. Think of those extremely wet temperate rainforests on the coast of Washington and Oregon and up into British Columbia. Not a lot to eat in those places. So they gradually evolved there to become the Sitka blacktail and the West Coast blacktail deer, morphing into the mule deer. So when they did this mitochondrial DNA testing, they found out that pretty much that DNA suggested that whitetails had gotten back over to the West Coast during another time frame, another eon, shall we say. And and by then, the blacktails had evolved enough from the original prototype deer that they were distinctly different as they are now. But when the doe whitetail got over there, the mule or the blacktail bucks were able to breed and that created the mule deer. I don't know, it sounds kind of crazy, but I guess DNA doesn't lie. And that's what the scientists found out. So essentially, the mule deer is a relatively new and they were suggesting only 10,000 years old as a species. And it sprang from this crossbreeding between a white tail and a black tail. Crazy stuff. And now it looks like the uh, black tail and mule deer are crossbreeding to make the bench leg deer. <laughs> and I don't think that's an official title. Here's something. Um, Something about safety hazard from Menzo's. Safety hazard. The hard polymer tips are not safe in tubular magazines. Only the very soft lever, or lever revolution are soft enough to be safe in tubular magazines. That's why all the standard ammo for lever guns had large me plats on the bullets, meaning a flat nose bullet or a big round nose. Um, good point there. So what, what he's saying is you've got plastic tip bullets, but not all plastics are alike. Plastic polymers and a rubberized thing. Hornady is who came out with this rubber flex tip bullet that allows a sharply pointed tip to be on bullets used in tubular fed magazines like the 336 Marlin lever action, the Henry lever actions, the Winchesters, 94s and such. So that tip is flexible enough that you don't have any chance of this potential impact of the sharply tipped bullet behind and resting on the primer of the cartridge in front of it could set it off like a firing pin. And there's a lot of argument about this. It comes up quite often. The point being that the manufacturers suggest that this is the possibility, that if you shoot, the recoil from that shot could jar the cartridges in the tubular magazine sufficiently to drive a sharply tipped bullet into the primer of the round in front of them setting off a chain reaction. Now everybody says, well, does this ever really happen? I've never heard of it. And some people have videos out trying to make this happen and not succeeding. But I found a video in which a tubular magazine slam fire did happen, but it wasn't with a sharply tipped bullet. This was from uh, Forgotten Weapons, and this gentleman was working with the Henry replica. And the old Henry had a long spring lever that you pushed from way back at the receiver up the tube all the way to the top and locked it over into place while you dumped rounds into the tubular magazine. Then you were supposed to move this thing back and slide it down gently. Well, he just put a, a handful of rounds in, so he had a lot of empty tube left, and he let it fly back under spring pressure. And that drove those cartridges together and created 
<laughs> a firing condition. Bang, bang. I think he had two rounds in there that went off. And he wasn't even using sharply tipped bullets. So what he thinks happened was there was enough pressure, enough jarring, that the primer itself ignited from the anvil within the primer, compressing enough against the base of the primer, where your firing pin would normally strike, to compress that powder and ignite it. He, obviously, he was shooting 4440 or 45 Colt or some kind of a center fire round, even though the original Henry rifle was chambered for a rim fire. For, so it wasn't a concern back in those days. So the point is, crazy things can happen. And since the manufacturers all insist on flat nose bullets, round nose bullets, no hard, sharp points on your bullets in the tubular magazines, that's what this gentleman is talking about. Only safe ones recognized are those rubber-tipped uh, lever revolution bullets, FTX bullets from Hornady. Good, good point there. Appreciate that. Um, that was Menzo's. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Now, from South Carolina, there is Mike asking this. Hey, your feedback on a couple of questions. What rifle sling do you prefer? And we're about the same size, so what is your length of pull? Well, what would be best way to find the correct length of pull? Thanks, Mike. P.S. Your shows are great. Glad you slipped that in. <laughs> no, I always appreciate it, folks, when you pat me on the back. We try hard around here, and we're glad we get it right. Okay, what sling do I prefer? I have never been one for all kinds of fancy slings. You know, just your, your basic sling that's adjustable. I do like to use a sling as a hasty sling in which I run my arm through it, wrap it around once, and it gives me some lateral support. Um, and I like it because it's quick. So this quick release, not quick release so much, quick adjust. A quick adjust sling, one inch wide. Sometimes I'll go one and a quarter, but I like to keep things light. This thing has a little tab on it that you can pull to shorten the length of the sling. So when I put it away, for instance, I'll just pull it all the way closed and that sling is tight against the belly of the gun. And then I can pull on it to bring it out. And it, sometimes I want a little more sling, sometimes a little less for carry. It depends on if I have heavy coats on or nothing on. Well, not nothing, but <laughs> not much. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just nicely adjustable. And then I can also adjust it for the rifle, depending on how far the sling mount is forward on the stock. I can adjust it so I get that good arm wrap for my hasty sling. Now, I'll see what was your other part of the question. Length of pull. You know, there's no cut and dried way to determine length of pull in a rifle. In a shotgun, it's way more important. In a rifle, you can make some adjustments. The critical thing is you don't want to be so short in the stock that your 
nose is essentially riding on the thumb over the top. Then you get a broken nose or at least a, a bumped one. But you don't want it so stretched out there so far like this either. So it's just kind of a balance. And I have found that I can work with, gosh, with stocks as short as 12 and three quarter inches because my short little wife has stocks that short for her. Uh, all I have to remember to do is to keep my head back and more erect. Obviously, it's not my preferred length. That's more like 14 inches, 13 and three quarter to 14. That's kind of your average that comes in factory rifles. If you find that if you're a tall, long-armed individual, that's a little too short for you. You can start to stretch it back out there. I think the longest length of pull I ever shot was a 505 Gibbs bull action rifle built by, mm, who was that gentleman in Hawaii? Uh, it wasn't an Empire rifle. It was a Kilimanjaro, I think. Um, yeah, that sounds right. At any rate, big heavy rifle shooting a 500 grain bullet, I believe. And the length of pull on it was something like 16 inches for this African PH who had ordered it special. <laughs> and I had the chance to shoot it on the range and I thought I can't turn down this opportunity. I mean, I was stretched out there, guys. <laughs> and that thing hurt. I don't know if it was just because it was a 505 Gibbs shooting a big bullet or it was the length of pull messing me up, but I thought my shoulder had gone to a next county over. <laughs> I'd never get it back. So there may be a component of comfort involved in this as well. But basically, as long as you're able to reach the trigger comfortably and get your head on the comb far enough back from the scope so you're not getting dinged or getting your nose busted by your thumb, I don't think it's really critical if it's a quarter inch shorter or longer here or there. It's not like a shotgun where that rifle has to come up exactly uh, to the same position for you to shoot. You are looking through a scope most of the time or an open sight and can compensate. So I guess, Mike, you're just going to have to play around with it and figure it out for yourself. But as I say, it shouldn't be hard. And I think anything in that average range or around 13 and three quarters to 14 inches probably work for you. Harry says, right now I'm in Florida. So Harry in Florida is asking, Ron, is there a complete comparison list of cartridges such as 6mm 243 or 280 Remington 7mm? Please let me know. And keep up the great info. Okay, appreciate it. A complete comparison list. So it sounds like you're suggesting, can you get a comparison of the performance of the various six millimeters, for instance? So 243 Winchester, six millimeter Remington, 243 Weatherby Magnum, six millimeter Creedmoor, all of them. Um, you know, you can certainly find that information in most hand-loading manuals. I mean, that's a great place to look. But not all hand-loading manuals have all the variable cartridges in there. So a really good resource is Cartridges of the World. Uh, I think it's still published by DBI Books. But if you just look up Cartridges of the World, oh my gosh, what a wonderful reference book. Quite thick. And not only does it have all of the cartridges currently being made and sold in the United States of America, but it has all the ones from Britain, all the ones from Europe, which would include uh, Scandinavian countries and French and German and everything around the world. There's a chapter on military cartridges. There's a chapter on obsolete American cartridges, rimfire cartridges. Wonderful, wonderful book. So you'll want to get that, and then you've got information on all of them. Now, it doesn't have a nice list that would say, 243 Winchester, 100 grain bullet, muzzle velocity, then all the rest of them like that. 
you'd have to compile that information yourself. But yeah, it's all out there. And as for the, as far as the seven millimeters, I am currently working on that one. We're going to have a book out here fairly soon that compares all of the seven millimeters I could scrounge up. And I've been looking uh, for a long time in a lot of places. So I've got some pretty obscure ones. We're still trying to find images to, to support some of those more obscure sevens. But that will be out. And that should be fun because not only do I compare their ballistics, but I talk a lot about their history, how they evolved, what the parent cartridges were, some of the uses to which they've been put over the years, and some of the famous hunters who shot them, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm hoping it'll be a, a fun book for you guys. Okay, Dave from Central Texas, as opposed to Eastern Woodland, Texas, or dried out Western Texas, or even in the mountains where way up in Northwest Texas. This is Central Texas. Dave here, what do you think about the possibility of future rifle cartridge de development in 40 caliber? The big ammo guys don't turn out much in regards to the 40s in a rifle. The 405 Winchester is still around, yeah, but that's a .411 bullet that, that thing takes. Um, and everyone's version of the 416 from Rigby, and that takes a 0.416 inch diameter bullet, so it's not really a 40. And then there's Remington, Ruger, Weatherby. Uh, however, a manageable deer cartridge in 40 caliber is missing on everyone's cartridge menu. There used to be a few, the 4060, 4072, 4082. Those are all neat 40 calibers. What do you think about a lengthened 41 mag case with a modern operating pressure of 50,000 K PSI? Really enjoy your videos. Well, thanks, Dave. Um, yeah, you're onto something here. Well, of course, recently there was the uh, 400 Legend. Just turned out this last, gosh, last winter, I guess. Um, and I had a chance to hunt with that and shoot it a bit. We should have a video coming up on that shooting episode here pretty quickly. That is a pretty good option. You know, now this is one of those developments in the straight walled only short rifle cartridge states for deer hunting. So think 350 Legend. Um, that was specifically designed for that. Most of the guys end up having to use 44 mags or 357 mags, handgun cartridges, revolver cartridges for that kind of hunting. So Winchester specifically designed some cartridges that would fit within those state limits that would work well in a rifle. And the 400 Legend looks like a pretty good option. I was pretty impressed with what that thing is doing. But yeah, traditionally in a center fires, I think you kind of nailed them. The, uh, I was thinking 404 Jeffrey, but that thing actually uses a 0.42-inch diameter bullet. Why they call it the 404, I don't know. Or the 405 Winchester using that 0.411, or maybe it's a 0.410 bullet, but... Pfft. Roughly the same thing there. So, yeah, true 40s using a 0.400 inch diameter bullet. Don't know of any. Now, I would say that they're not being developed simply because you're getting up there in size to where most people in the United States, at least, and probably around the world, just aren't that interested because we have such effective 30 caliber, 7 millimeters, 6.5s, 338s. They handle pretty much everything. And if you're getting up into dangerous game, well, then we've got the 416s and the 450s and whatnot. Oh, I just thought of another one, the 45400. That's the 450 Nitro Express neck down, but that's not a 40 caliber bullet either. It's about a 411 as well, maybe a 410. So yeah, not too many 40s, but I just don't think there's a big demand for them. And the manufacturers aren't going to be cranking them out. You can generally tell what is going to be popular and what 
might have significant demand based on how many wildcats you find in that particular caliber. And I know very few 40 caliber wildcats. You're suggesting one here with that 41 mag case. That is a handgun revolver case. Um, and I think that one takes a 411 or 412 inch diameter bullet too. But you'd kind of, well, you'd have to slope the sidewalls maybe a little more to get a 40 caliber bullet in it. Not much though. So that might work. But again, you're down to handgun cartridges. And how much of a demand is there for that stuff? That's my take on it, Dave. All right, now up in the forested state of Michigan comes Steve. Ron, I watch all of your videos almost every night with my father, anxiously awaiting the next. Well, that's nice. Appreciate that. Say hello to your pops for me. Thanks for watching. Um, question. I can't find much reliable information on nickel-plated brass and bullets. Do they foul barrels? Are they easily reloadable? I believe prior Norma sold a nickel jacket. Not sure. Um, I think he means bullet, but he doesn't specify. A nickel jacket, something. In addition, I'm partly concerned that the jacket is coated in nickel and collects in the barrel. How would you ever properly clean it out without compromising the rifling? You know, this is, um, will this damage my new rifle? Okay, Steve, I think we've got a couple of things going on here. I'm not quite sure if you're meaning nickel-plated bullets, nickel-coated bullets, or only nickel-coated or plated cases. Take a brass case and give it a wash or plating of nickel. And what you're doing with nickel coating on a case is preventing the tarnishing of the brass. You've had a brass cartridge around. You notice they start to get old, dirty-looking, and they can actually tarnish a bit. And the nickel is shiny and smooth, and it stops that because it does not corrode like that. So that's the advantage in the case itself. That's not an issue with fouling inside of the chamber. Um, you mentioned barrel fouling, and that suggests you're thinking the bullet is nickel-coated or plated or something. And there have been a few over the years, but I'm pretty sure that that was just a touch of nickel in a gilding metal or copper. So it was an alloy. And they introduced a little bit of nickel, perhaps, to make it a little slicker and, and or, again, just to help with the tarnishing or something. Now, nickel can be as hard as steel or close to it. Um, from what I remember in metallurgy, they're getting close, but I don't know that it would be a serious threat to a barrel unless you had a fairly soft barrel steel of some kind. But what really informs me on the safety of all this is the fact that these ammunition companies made it. If they're building it, it's not going to be hazardous to your rifle or how many would they sell? They're not going to crank something out that would soon get a reputation for don't buy the XYZ bullets or cartridges because by golly, they're going to destroy your rifle. Wouldn't stay in business long with something like that. So I think anything that you see out there that is nickel-plated case and or bullets, if there still are some, I know they've been around from time to time. I don't think you need to worry about it. Now, that's not an absolute answer, so if anybody has the absolutes, as usual, we surely... Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. 
At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome that information. All right, Zach from Texas. Why isn't the 300 SAUM SOM, the short action ultra magnum Remington cartridge, as popular as the 300 WSM? And what's your favorite cartridges for prairie dog hunting? What are your favorite cartridges for prairie dogs? So I have two questions here from Zach. Well, Zach, first of all, I assume the 300 SOM is not as popular as the 300 WSM because it came out just a little bit later. Only by a matter of a month or two or three. Um, but the SOM is not as large and fast as a 300. And I think the point being, if you're going to buy a short action 300 that's going to come close to or match the 300 Win Mag, you're probably going to take the WSM because it does, whereas the SOM does not. Still a great cartridge. It's really not a big deal. But once again, when it comes to people's making buying decisions, we usually want the biggest bang for the buck or what we consider to be the best. And when you look at two cartridges and one's just a smidgen fatter than the other and puts out a little bit more velocity and horsepower, that's pretty much the one you're going to roll with. You know, there are a few folks really interested in efficiency and they might go with the one that doesn't burn as much powder. But as often is said with these cartridges, the game isn't going to know the difference. I have taken all kinds of animals with both of these. Well, I take it back with the 300 WSM. I've only ever taken one thing I can recall with the SOM, and that was an elk. And it just happened to absorb four or five rounds, at least three before I even knew I was hitting it. It was really quite amazing. All of the bullets were doing their job, doing the damage, but it so often happens with lung shot animals, they don't necessarily react. And this elk sure didn't, and it was a big bull. He just continued standing and or walking until finally the fourth shot, I think it was, got a reaction out of him. He kind of hopped up a bit and moved forward, and then he started to wobble, and down the hill he came. So, But I don't think that was any reflection on that short-action Ultramag because they've shot elk with like 30-odd sixes that are even slower than the Psalm and got better reactions out of it. So... Uh, that's my take on it. Now, as for the prairie dog cartridges, I don't do much prairie dog hunting anymore because over the years, and we're talking going back into the late 1960s, I have just seen so many areas that had prairie dogs now don't. And it's another one of these cases of overdoing it. And we tended to do that historically with all kinds of wildlife, ducks and egrets and, and uh, all big game before we established the North American model of wildlife conservation and unsustainable use. It was all market hunting back in the day or basic survival. And we certainly don't have to do that anymore these days. And in order to maintain wildlife populations, we have to limit the take. The problem with prairie dogs is that they've always been seen as glorified mice or rats. And just as you don't allow mice and rats to run around your house or even your granaries on the farm, you probably don't want a bunch of prairie dogs eating up all the grass in your pasture and especially not in your hay fields. So they have always been regarded as a pest that should be shot. And when there were billions of them, I mean, they used to say that prairie dog towns extended from the grasslands up in Alberta, clear down into Texas, almost uninterrupted. 
and the bison were moving across all of that range, and it was quite the ecosystem. But it was quite productive and functioning too. You know, we talk about, oh, the prairie dogs eat all of the grass and there's nothing left for the livestock. Well, when you're farming and trying to make a living off of it, it will make a difference. But as far as not being able to support any grazing animals because the prairie dogs ate it all, sure didn't seem to stop the bison. (laughs) They were estimating something like 40 million bison in the Great Plains, and they were living cheek to jowl with prairie dogs. I have seen on prairie dog towns quite regularly, pronghorn, mule deer. I don't know if I've seen any elk on it, but that's probably because when I was frequenting the dog towns, the elk weren't in that country yet. Lewis and Clark certainly found them. They just talked about huge herds of elk and mule deer and whitetail and pronghorn all in view at once, just off the Missouri River in central South Dakota, where I have hunted prairie dogs. So I know they were there at the same time. But your question isn't about what do I think about prairie dog management? (laughs) Your question is about what are you going to shoot them with? My favorite prairie dog cartridge is the 17 WSM and or the 17 Winchester Super Magnum. Both of those short little things I enjoy because my idea of a fun prairie dog hunt is a hunt. You know, the tradition is to set up with a long reach rifle, like a 223 or 22 250, something like that, and just reaching way out there and making precision shots at long range. But I have found it just way more exciting and entertaining for me to test my hunting abilities, my stalking through a prairie dog town. Now, some of them are so flat that you really can't do much stalking, but a lot of them are rolly. So what I'll do is I'll walk up a rolly hill and then creep over the top as if I'm stalking pronghorn and then start picking off close prairie dogs. And a lot of them will be really close, like inside of a hundred yards. And I will pick a few off that way until they get wise and go underground. And then I will move off scouting, glassing and up and over the next roll and find a few more. And I do understand um, ranchers and farmers who are plagued by rodent populations, whether they're prairie dogs or the various other ground squirrels. Um, And it makes sense to trim those populations, not wipe them out, but trim them so that the ranchers and farmers don't have to then poison the prairie dogs and wipe the whole colony out. That's a much bigger issue than shooting a few. So nothing wrong with managing a population of rats of various stripes. These are rodents and they're rats um, out in the, in the grain fields and productive fields. I mean, we don't typically allow burrowing ground squirrels to take over our backyards in suburbia. We think we need a nice green lawn and our flowers and our bushes, and we won't stand for these things. Why should we then assume that every farmer and rancher out there should allow them in his place? (laughs) Okay, those are my sermons on the rodents in the grain fields. All right, next we're going to hear from John from Colorado. You've done several 6.5 comparisons, sometimes even mentioning the first U.S. iteration the 256 Newton. It would be fun if you'd include its ballistic potential along with the more modern cartridges. It is fairly close to the 6.5 by 284 Norma in case capacity. The original 1 in 10 twist limited it to 130 grain bullets. My Ruger M77 has a 1 to 8.5 twist for more versatility. I know that you use published data, but the only loading manual that I have heard of that included the 256 Newton was the Spear Hand Loaders Manual Volume 1. That's going back a ways. Someone posted the pages, so I downloaded a copy. 
The max loadings seem a little warm, typical of the day, I understand. I am not above a little hyperbole to promote a favorite, also typical of the day. Love your common sense journalism. Reminds me of my hero, the gun editor for Outdoor Life back in my day. Well, thanks for that, John. Hey, that's a good one, bringing up the uh, 256 Newton. Most people don't know about this. Newton, of course, was a uh, really productive and effective cartridge designer back in the turn of the 20th century. And his 256 Newton of his, I think, came out in 1912. He actually had a rifle company for a time. They kind of went bankrupt from poor business deals or something. I don't know exactly what, but he also made, say, the 22 Imp, the Savage High Power. That was his creation. Uh, he did another one for Savage. It's escaping me right now, but he made a lot of really good, effective cartridges ahead of their time. And I think the 256 Newton was one of them. Now, this was not a 25 caliber. It was a 6.5. So it shot a 0.264 inch diameter bullet. He took the 30 out six case, shortened it a bit and necked it down to make this. So really it was the 6.5 out six of today was pretty much what Newton was making then. The, the Full one today is full length 30 out six neck down, whereas his was shortened just a bit. But boy, they come pretty close to the same performance. So yeah, that would be one be fun to cover if I had a rifle for it. The thing with um, these old cartridges and rifles is you can't find either one of them to do any work with. But if I ever come across an old Newton rifle chambered for that, I'd play around with it. Now, what I might do someday when I'm doing another something other about either the 25-06 or some of the 6.5s, like that 65 by 284 Norma, I can drag the 256 Newton in and pull up its data from the day and maybe even extrapolate what one might be able to do with it today in loading the new powders. Maybe it'll get a little more efficient load in it. So maybe I can pull it in that way. I think if I just produced a video on the 256 Newton, I wouldn't get a lot of views because most people would go, what's this? And not even really care. So maybe I'm wrong about that. Let me know, folks. If if you're interested in the old 256 Newton, let me know and I will do some deep research on it and get back to you with a video. I mean, why not? <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, boy, we're going to Germany. We're going to go to Germany from Michael. Is there ever going to be a video about 8mm cartridges? <laughs> a good old 8mm. It seems like every show somebody brings up 8mm. This is getting crazy. Will there ever be a video about 8mm cartridges like the 8x57 or the 8x68mm? I just watched your video about the best elk cartridges. There was no 8mm in it. <laughs> in Germany, those two rounds are very popular. Did you skip past it because there are not a lot of hunting rifles chambers for those two in the U.S.? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> there are not. And I have never worked with one. But I have been mentioning both quite often here in my recent videos, both on this channel and my regular Ron Spomer Outdoors YouTube channel. Because the 857, of course, was the seminal first rimless modern metallic smokeless powder cartridge uh, that was designed by the uh, German military commission in 1888 and then modified to take a wider bullet in 1905. They went from a 0.318 inch diameter bullet to a 0.323 inch diameter bullet. And that became the cartridge that were used in World War I and World War II. And of course, was extremely popular with German hunters until I think there was a restriction after World War I 
that uh, civilians couldn't buy the rifles and or ammunition for the 8x57. So they created the 8x68, if I remember right. And that was, of course, not a military cartridge, so it was allowed. And that one obviously added more length to the case, more powder, and you had performance that was equal to or better than the 30-06. So I would guess in Germany, the 8x68 is kind of comparable in popularity and performance to the 30-06 over here. But exactly as you say, Michael, because we don't have a commercial hunting rifles from Browning, Winchester, Ruger, and Savage, and Mossberg, and all the rest of them, um, chambered for that over here, we just don't see them. Uh, has no reflection on the rounds efficiency. If somebody is liking the idea of a 32 caliber, a little bit bigger bullet than the 30s with about the same ballistics as the 30-06, definitely something to look for. And you might find an old uh, captured or brought back from the war, grandpa, great-grandpa, somebody might have brought one back and it's sitting up in the attic looking like an old antique. But hey, the Model 98 Mausers from the German military were ah outstanding quality control in those things. They are just a beautiful, well-built rifle that should still be a shooter. So you might find something like that, make it a project rifle, borderize it, or hey, just take it out and use it the way it is. Definitely have it checked out, though, by a gunsmith certified to make sure there's nothing goofy going on with it. But generally, those are just dependable, highly functional rifles and wonderful, smooth, bold actions. Okay, there is one other thing about the 8mm. I did do a standalone video on an 8mm, and I've mentioned it before in these broadcasts. We named the, the title of that video, if you want to search for it, is Mystery Deer Cartridge is Dying. So it makes it hard to search for it because we don't have 8mm in the title anywhere. Um, but we will put the link here for you guys. You can go check that one out because that is an all-American 8mm that is not very popular <laughs> and it's dying. All right, that looks like the end of the question. So, hey, once again, we want to thank all of you folks for uh, writing in, offering your suggestions and your compliments and your questions. I hope we had something that was fairly entertaining today. If you've got anything that you'd like to add to the program, by golly, just go to ronspomeroutdoors.com website. There's a comment section up on top. Hit comment and the form will come up and you can send in your question and or correction or comment or request. And we'll be happy to entertain it on our next episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. Hunt honest and shoot straight. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents, anywhere, anytime, and on any device. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. 
Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.